feels a little bit like I should say five dollars off for the Pepsi can after something like that. That's pretty amazing like that. So it's a welcome to Rowdy Rod's Truck and Tractor Pool. That's awesome. Clayton, that's an incredible video. Thank you for putting that together. That's great. And Carla, thank you for reading scripture for us today. Where did you go? There you are back there, Carla. Thanks for doing that. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. That's the passage that she just read was Luke chapter 10. It's where we're going to be today, beginning in verse 25 and following. And I'm not going to ask us to stand and read this today like we normally do. We do want to honor the fact that this is the word of the Lord. And we do want to honor, honor the fact that today what we will hear is, is way better than just my opinion. What we'll hear today is actually coming straight out of scripture. And, it, and it's an opportunity for us to hear what God has to say and to adjust our lives accordingly. And really to ask for his grace, for his mercy, and for his spirit to be at work in our lives. And so that's what we're going to look at as we do as we look at Luke chapter 10. And you know that today we're in a series and we will be really all semester long from now until Christmas in a series called Parables. And a parable is really a simple story. It's a small story with a big meaning is what that is. I think I put on Facebook this morning an autocorrect helped me. It's a small story with a big meaning. And I don't think I need any more meetings in my life. You probably don't either. But I do need some more meaning in my life. And that's what a parable is. And actually, every parable in Scripture, there's kind of a pattern to the parables. It always reveals uh, several things. It reveals, actually, uh, every parable will reveal something about the kingdom of God. And every parable will reveal something about the character of God. And every parable will reveal something, well, a principle that becomes something that we should put into practice. And so we're going to see all of those things in the parable that we're looking at today. And, and one of the reasons why I'm not going to go back and reread what Carla just read is really because this is a parable we know, isn't it? This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And every time I think about parables and all of those different stories that Jesus told, I always wonder that question, if my life was a parable or if your life was a parable, what lesson would we learn? Isn't that, isn't that interesting to consider a question like that? If your life or my life was a parable, what lesson would we learn? Because there are people who are watching us. Some of them are our uh, kids. Maybe it's younger, younger friends or older friends and family. They're just keeping an eye on our life. And there are lessons that they're learning from the way we talk and the way we act. There are things they're learning from us. And what they learn from us does something similar as a parable, it reveals what we believe about the kingdom of God. How we act and the words we use reveal what we believe about the character of God. And then the way we act and the words we choose, it actually also reveals the principles that we believe are valuable, that really that we think are effective, that we think work. And so, so these parables that we're looking at are important. And today's parable is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I'm, I'm so thankful that we're here and we have the opportunity to to look at this passage of Scripture because this is one that just seems so familiar to us. It just seems like this is one we know, isn't it? And actually, it's so familiar to us that if you're not a believer and you just kind of slipped in because you just came in off the street or, or you, you finally gave in to that friend or that family member that's been inviting you to church, I'm so glad that you're here today. You may still be skeptical about what church is or what, what Scripture's all about, but this is one of those stories that you know, right? This is one of those stories that you, that you think you know. And here's what I would challenge you to do. If you're skeptical about Scripture, my challenge to you today would be to go beyond the story of the Good Samaritan. If you think that's a good story, there's some other stories in this book that are worth your time and attention. 
that story has been influential in our culture in a way that is really reflective of the way this book has been influential in our culture. And so if you're not a believer, if you're a skeptic, if you're someone who's just checking things out or you've got questions, well, this is a great place to go for a lot of reasons. One of them is because some of the stories you think you know, they have their source in this book. And then more than that, so much of our culture has been influenced by this book. It's worth your time and attention. It's worth your study. And then for those of us who are believers, well, I hope that we can go deeper than the story we think we know. I hope that we can look inside this story of the Good Samaritan and we can see something deeper than just how to get along with others. I hope we see a picture of God's kingdom, an illustration of God's character, and an example of principles that we need to, that, that we need to practice. And my voice is changing as I speak, and so I finally hit puberty. So thanks. Thanks for that. Um, do your best to pay attention to the words and not to the clown on the stage. That would be awesome. That'd be great. Luke chapter 10, actually verse 25 is where the story begins, but I'm going to start at the part of the story we know. So here's the scene. Jesus has been teaching all over, all over the Sea of Galilee. He's becoming more and more prominent as a preacher and a teacher. And, and now there are, there are religious leaders of the day who are questioning whether or not this is a man they should listen to. And to some degree, they're getting jealous or a little envious of the power and the authority and the influence that he has. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the different religious leaders, the lawyers, they keep finding opportunities to question Jesus. And we might think that their motives are pure, but the further in the story you go, the more you realize... Uh, not so much. They're trying to trip up Jesus as often as they possibly can. And so at the beginning of the story, the beginning of the passage isn't the story of the Good Samaritan. The beginning of the passage is this incredible interaction that Jesus is having with this lawyer. And it starts very simply, the lawyer really was trying to test Jesus. And so he asks some good questions. And we'll talk about the way Jesus responded in a minute because I really want to talk about the parable itself first and then we're going to come back to the beginning of the story, that interaction between Jesus and, and, and the lawyer. We're going to come back to that at the end of our time today. But right now, let's focus on the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, here's what we know. He tells this story. Look at verse 30. Verse 30 says, uh, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So here's this guy who's just doing his business. He's just living his life. And he's gone from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's on that road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he gets caught with some, with some bad folks. He gets caught. He gets robbed. He gets mugged. All of his stuff gets taken. They beat him enough that he's left for dead. And you remember how the story unfolds. These three people pass by. One's a priest. And one's another kind of servant in the temple. He's another kind of preacher, you, you might say. And then the third guy comes along, and he's a Samaritan. Now, for us, we've talked about the good Samaritan for so long, we can't help but think good thoughts about the Samaritan, right? But not to the lawyer. Not to the 12 disciples. Actually, there's a scene between Jesus and... James and John, where there's some good things happening over in Samaria, where the Samaritans live. And James and John are so offended that good things are happening there. They look to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, don't you think we should just call fire down on those people? Because those are Samaritans. You know, these are bad people. And so in the story, the thing that's shocking about this story is the thing that we kind of all already know, right? That the priest saw the guy who'd been robbed and beaten. He looked at him and went on. 
And then the other religious leader who came by looked at the guy who was hurting, who was alone, who was in a dangerous circumstance, whose life was on the line, who had lost everything. He looks at him and, and he just moves along, along. The shocking part of the story is that in those three in the temple during that day, the priest, the religious leader, the third person shouldn't have been a Samaritan. The third person should have been another Jew. It should have been a volunteer or a layperson in the life of the temple. Someone who is another, that's who should have been going by. Somebody surely should have helped this person. But Jesus shocks them. And he shocks them by saying, these people you don't like. These people who, if we were honest, don't like you. It's a Samaritan who passes by. And it's the Samaritan who does the human thing. It's the Samaritan that does the kind thing. It's the Samaritan who does the thing that the priest and the religious leader, he's the one who does the thing that, that we all kind of in our gut, don't we just kind of know that in our gut, that's what we, what we should do, that's what we ought to do? So what is it that made the Samaritan unique in this story? You see, we're going to focus on the Samaritan for a little bit. And then by the end of this passage and the end of this message, we're going to see that we are in this story but not exactly in the place where you might think. So we're going to see that we're in this story. And we're going to start by taking a look at the Good Samaritan. Now here's what the Good Samaritan did that, that became so unique. Now the Samaritans, they were, they were enemies of, well, not really enemies. They just didn't have a great relationship. Obviously, they, they didn't get along. They didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like them. They didn't get along well. There was a problem there. And so here's the Samaritan. And here's the first thing that he did. He saw people. And I think that's something that we should be able to do as believers. We ought to see people. We ought to see them for who they are, for the need they have, for the personality that they have. That's actually, when we talk about the life of our church, we have this vision statement that we talk about periodically. And that vision statement is we exist to love all people to Christ and equip them on their journey with God and with one another. We exist to love all people to Christ and equip them on their journey with God and one another. What does that look like? To love all people on their journey with God and one another. What does that look like? Well, it starts with a seeing people. Here's, here's a question that I have that I think is challenging to me, and I, I believe it will be challenging to you. What do you see when you see people? You're just out on the street. You're just walking somewhere, anywhere. Do you see the white guy? Do you see the black guy? Do you see the Hispanic guy? Is what you see the homeless, the homeless person? The special needs kid? The gluten-free kid? The smart kid? The dumb kid? The jock? The geek? The band guy? What, what is it that you see when you see people? Do you see the person first? Or do you see the label you see, the priest and the religious leader that came through, they didn't see the need in the person. They didn't see the person at all. They just saw a Samaritan. Actually, it'd be really easy, wouldn't it, to justify 
what the priest and the religious leader did in passing on. This is an area that's known for crime. I mean, clearly this guy's just been mugged. How do I know? How could I possibly know that this guy's not just a con artist who's just setting me up? Maybe he didn't really get hurt. Maybe he's just the shill and I'm just the guy that they're going to come and they're going to they're going to come take my stuff. And so they had good reasons to look at the guy who's beaten up and go and their thought was he didn't see person, they saw victim, right? They saw a victim and they thought to themselves, well, he's the victim right now and if I help him, maybe I become the victim. I, I should just move on. I should just go on. I don't, I don't want to help him because I don't want to be the victim. And, and so do we see labels or do we see people? I graduated from Oklahoma Baptist University. It's down in Shawnee. And um, one of the things about OBU that's interesting is it's kind of a small little community. It's a, it's a great school and a you know, good-sized uh, good, good size student base, but everybody's kind of coming from a similar perspective at OBU, and they try to be kind to one another. And so it wasn't uncommon when I'm walking down the street at, at Shawnee, I'm going from class to class, it wasn't uncommon for another student as I passed by, whether I knew who they were or not, they'd be like, hey, how you doing? It just was sort of habit. We just, hey, how you doing? And we just keep walking. We just keep passing. And the standard answer at OBU when someone was, hey, how you doing? The standard answer was, I'm fine. So we'd just be walking. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. And you just keep going. So I thought one day I'd try a little experiment because I like to do crazy weird things, really just weird things. I, I thought, here's this little experiment I'm going to do. I'm, instead of saying, I'm fine, I'm going to replace the words, I'm fine, with the words, I'm dying. Because it sounds similar. If you say it fast and I'm dying, it sounds like I'm fine, I'm dying. It sounds so similar. And so I just wanted to see who was really paying attention and who wasn't. I can't tell you the number of times I would walk past someone at OBU and they'd say, hey man, how you doing? I'd say, I'm dying. And they'd be like, great, that's awesome. And they'd keep going. There were so many people at OBU who were overjoyed at my impending death. It was, it was really encouraging to see that. What do you see? What do you hear? When you see people, do you see the person or do you see the label? There was a woman who was here just a few minutes ago, and she's not in the room now. And uh, she stood up and said, I, I have a, a word I want to share with the congregation. And she was really reluctant to tell me what it was. And I asked her to tell me what the story was and told her that I'd talk about it just a little bit, mainly because it fits with the story that we're talking about. Uh, she noticed uh, a man who was homeless and on the steps of the church here. She noticed him, and then suddenly she stopped noticing him, and why, where'd he go? And she said someone came along and, and told him he needed to move along, that this was no place for homeless people. Well, um, while this may not be a place for homeless people to live, let me assure you, this is a place for homeless people. Maybe not to live, but to find help and to find hope. One of the characteristics of our church that I hope is always true, and when I say our church, I don't mean the programs that we do. I mean the heart of who you are and the heart of who I am, is that when we see people, we would see beyond the label and that we would meet the right need. And that as we meet that right need, that we would help someone like that find help and find hope and find the place where they're supposed to be. Well, this woman, her name was Dora. She, she found this man at Dollar General Store, and she was able to just have a good conversation with him. And in having the conversation with him, he's 83 years old, she found out that, you know who that is? That's great. Yeah, she, so, so she found this man who was homeless, 83 years old. She talks to him, and she finds out that he's actually lost from Oklahoma City and has been able to help reunite him with 
his family. And I think that's a beautiful example of something a good Samaritan would do, wouldn't it? I mean, that's a great example of that. Isn't that the heart of who we're supposed to be? That we see beyond the label and that we work to meet the right need, that we, that we work to see people for who they are. And that's actually the second thing that I want us to notice. Look at Luke 10, 33. Luke 10, 33 is the next part of that story that everybody's so familiar with. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion for the man who was hurt. He had compassion on him. And that's the, that's the next idea. Not only do we need to see people, but we need to be willing to meet needs. Not only do we need to see people, we need to be willing to meet needs. And that's what Dora did. That was a great example of being a good Samaritan. And you all have experienced that before, either as the one who's being helped or as the one who is providing help. It's one of the things I'm so thankful for in the life of our church. Every week, every weekend, every day, I hear stories of the people of our church opening their home, opening their finances, or spending their time to help other people. It's kind of the heart behind the mission that we have up on Garnett at Highway 20. The idea that we would partner people who have things with people who need things, and that as we do that, we would share the love of Christ with one another. It's something I see the people of our church do frequently, and I want to make certain that we don't miss that idea that we need to be a people who are willing to meet needs. Now, here's one of the problems that I think we face. Especially in this community right around here, there really is a lot of homelessness here. There's a lot. There's a lot of people with a lot of needs here. And it's really easy to look at all the needs out there. You can think of all the hurting kids all over the world and all the hurting people all over the world. And you can think to yourself, I'm just overwhelmed, God. How could I possibly meet any of these needs? How could I possibly help anyone? One of the challenges I face is my schedule, I just don't have the time for it, and my budget, I just don't have the money for it. How can I possibly meet these needs? Well, doesn't that identify a challenge for us that we ought to overcome? We ought to learn to prioritize our time and our schedules so that we have some margin in them. You see, I sort of imagine that that was part of the problem of the priest. I think the priest probably looked at his schedule and he was busy getting to another what he thought of as godly activity, another godly thing. I don't have time to help people. I'm too busy going to Bible study. You could almost hear the Pharisee, or not the Pharisee, but the, the priest say. You could, you could almost hear that, right? I don't have time to do this great thing because I'm doing so many good things. My schedule is full. My time is all full up. The, the other religious leader that came on behind him, well, he's not quite as prominent, not got quite as much authority or responsibility in the life of the church or the life temple. His, temple. His, his income just isn't quite as high as the guy who came before him. I could see him looking at his own checkbook going, I don't have the money for this. I, he's, I could become a victim too in the first place, but more than that, I just don't have any more room in my budget to help anyone. Maybe that becomes a challenge for us, that we would manage our time and our resources in a way that there's margin for us to be able to simply see people and then to meet a need. That we would be able to, at a moment's notice, take the time we need with the resource we need to provide the help that someone else needs. And here's something that I think we're all guilty of at some point in regards to being a good Samaritan. Sometimes we try really hard to meet a need that's really not their need. It's really about us wanting to feel good about meeting somebody's need. 
Have you ever been guilty of that before? I know I have. I tried to meet somebody else's need, but I wasn't really trying to meet their need. I was just trying to feel good about myself and the fact that I've made myself available to do that. I hope we can not be those people. I hope we can avoid that. Um, I don't want to make light of anyone's calling, but I am going to tell a story that sounds like I'm making light of someone's calling. But uh, Keith Davis was in a meeting at a previous church that was like a revival-style, camp-style meeting where people... I mean, the, the worship had been sweet. The study of God's word had been incredible. The spirit was definitely in the place. There were people who were coming up to the microphone and confessing and repenting of ways that they had, they had said no to God and things that they had done that, that, uh, that, that, that they needed to not do or things that they needed to start doing. And, and Keith tells the story that this one woman stood up and she's just so emotional and she's, so, she's crying over the fact that she's rejected and said no to God for so long and and, and I think her confession was valuable. I think that moment of obedience for her was important. But it was just, it was interesting the things she said. She got up to the microphone, she's just crying, and she says, I just have to tell you, I've been rejecting and resisting God for so long. He's called me, he's called me to the clowning ministry, and I've just said no for so long. I've just, God's called me to be a clown, and that's, I've just said no and, and everybody's response in the room in this serious moment was similar to what y'all are doing right now. You're just, you're trying to go, you're trying not to laugh just a little bit because I don't want to make light of somebody's calling. And she definitely was being obedient to what she thought God was doing in that moment. But was that, was that the expression of the calling that God had for her? Clowning ministry? Was that the need that God was calling her to meet? I don't know. Maybe it was. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe she's the, the best clown for God ever right now today. I, I don't know. But sometimes, aren't we guilty of trying to meet a need that's more about our needs than it is about someone else's need? You see, the good Samaritan in this passage, he stopped what he was doing. He had margin in his schedule to just stop. He saw the need that was there. And he met the need that was right in front of him. He had margin in his finances. He put this man on the back of his own animal and took him into a town. Now, remember, there's animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And it's, in, in all likelihood, the man that was hurt was probably Jewish. And in all likelihood, the Samaritan and the Jewish man, they ended up in a Jewish town. This could be dangerous for the Samaritan. Maybe... You get, a, you get around other Jews, and maybe it would be easy for the Samaritan to be accused of the man who did the damage, who did the harm. And now he's taking him into an inn, and he's, he's treating his wounds with his own time and his own skill and his own money. And he's paying for this man's wounds to be bound and be taken care of. And the Samaritan looks at the inn owner and says, hey, I've got to go do some things, but I'm coming back. Take really good care of this man while I'm gone. Whatever you spend on him, keep track of it, because I'm going to pay that bill when I come. He didn't just see people, he didn't just see the person, he met the need, and he met the right need at, at great cost to himself, both in his time and in his money, to his reputation, and possibly, possibly even at his own peril. He did all of those things. You see, there's some things about meeting needs that I think are challenging. Sometimes God calls us to meet the needs of people who aren't like us. That's the danger of seeing people through those labels. Sometimes, well, there's a, it's a verse. It's uh, Matthew chapter 5. 
verses 46 and 47. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, it basically says it's in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is saying, what good is it? What good is it if you love the people who love you? What, what good is that? If you love the people who love you, what, what good is it? How are you any different from the, the sinners and the tax collectors if, if the only people you like and the only people you help are the people who are like you? Matthew 5, 46 and 47 are telling us we should learn to love and help people who aren't like us. And then Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Romans chapter 12, verses 20 and 21 tell us that we need to serve and love people who don't like us. It's exactly what the Samaritan and the Jewish, it's exactly what happened with the Samaritan. We need to serve people who don't like us. Actually, Romans 12, 20, it tells us that, that we should take those who are hungry, even if they're our enemy. That it actually, in verse 19, it tells us, you know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. And, and then based on that idea, since God is the one who experiences and, and, and dishes out, hands out that justice, because he's the one to do that, then what we are to do in our lifetime with the time that God's given us, what we are to do is we're to love our enemy, even if that means we're to feed him when he's hurt, to care for him when he's in trouble. In Romans 12, 20, it tells us it's like we're heaping burning coals of fire on his head. It's almost like we're shaming him because you're, you're my enemy. You've, you expect things to go poorly for me, but I'm trying to make things go well for you. And verse 21 is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. It says, do not be overcome with evil but overcome evil with good. How many problems have we created in our country, in our community, and in our own lives because when somebody does wrong to us, we just wrong them right back. When someone doesn't give us the time of day, it gives us permission, right, to just write them off. And Scripture actually tells us to do exactly the opposite of that. You know, Jesus is parroting something that he put in Matthew chapter 9, where he looks out across the, 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 the nation of Israel. He's looking out across the crowd and it says he saw the need and he was moved with compassion for them. This, this, uh, this parable illustrates exactly that idea that we need to see the needs and we need to be moved with compassion. We need to make room for inconvenience. We need to meet needs, but not just many needs. We need to meet the right needs. So there's one more thing that I think this story teaches us. And it's as we start looking in the relationship between Jesus and that lawyer who's asking questions. And that's, that's it. That's it exactly. We need to not just see people and meet needs. We need to ask questions. We need to ask questions. This is exactly the pattern that Jesus took with the people. Every time he was challenged, not every time, often when he was challenged, he would respond with a question. And what I think is interesting about the question that the lawyer asks is that the question that the lawyer asks is a question that really has a gospel-centered answer. Did, did you notice that? Look at Luke chapter 10. We're going to go back up to the very beginning, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The lawyer is asking a question that has a gospel-centered answer. You see, as you see people, as you look beyond the label, as you try to meet a need, I hope you'll listen closely to the things they say and the questions they ask. Tomorrow at work or at school, tomorrow when you're out in the community or you're on the ball field, you're going to hear some questions. And if you're listening well, some of those questions are going to have gospel answers attached to them. Look what happens. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? 
And I think it's interesting because Jesus in that moment, what does it take? To, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life, the lawyer says. Well, who better qualified to answer that question than Jesus? This is like a moment for a spiritual slam dunk that Jesus could have made. But instead, he doesn't try to prove a point. Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he asks another question. Maybe that's a principle we can, we can learn from. Maybe there are moments in our workplace, at our school. Maybe there are moments on the ball field or in our hobbies or wherever we are where we're having a conversation with someone. And instead of seeing the label of Republican or Democrat, and instead of seeing the label of I'm right and you're wrong, instead of seeing those labels, maybe we could listen for the way they're asking questions and recognize when those questions have gospel answers. And then instead of trying to prove a point, we could ask a question that leads to a gospel conversation. You see how that works? That's exactly what Jesus did. He had an opportunity for what some would consider a spiritual slam dunk. Who better to answer this question than Jesus? And instead, he asks another question. I think it's interesting what the lawyer says because it proves that the lawyer's been listening to the other parts of the teaching of Jesus. Look what happens in verse 27. And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. You see, that, that phrase, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that was Jesus' teaching on the law. So here's a lawyer who knows, he knows the Ten Commandments inside and out. He knows the first five books of the, of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He knows those inside and out. He's one who helps interpret the law and who helps apply the law. He knows the law inside and out. But in that moment, he's trying to catch Jesus using Jesus' own words. He's listened closely enough to know the words of Jesus. But he doesn't have a relationship with Jesus that's close enough for him to understand the heart of Jesus. And I have to wonder about all of us who come to church on a frequent basis. I wonder how much like the lawyer we are oftentimes. We have a tremendous amount of spiritual knowledge. But what is our willingness to actually apply that knowledge? To actually do something about it. To stand in front of a crowd and even if it sounds foolish, say, God, I've resisted you for so long, you've called me into the clowning ministry and I'll say yes. To, to manage our schedule so that there's enough margin that I can help people when I see a need. So that I can use the resources God's entrusted to me, not for my own benefit, just because something comes to me may not mean that it's for me. It came to me maybe so I could help someone else. In this moment, I'm someone who has something. Maybe God's wanting to partner me with somebody who needs something. How many times are we going to listen to sermons just like this and leave from a place like this without doing anything about it because our heart isn't like the Samaritan. Our heart is more like the lawyer. You see, there's a basic misunderstanding that the lawyer had. And it's in his basic misunderstanding that the parable of the Good Samaritan shows us who we are in the story. Show, look back with me one more time at Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, that, that question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, it, it, reveals, it reveals really the character of God, doesn't it? The essential character of Christianity 
It's not being better than, but becoming faithful to. That's the essential character. You see, the idea that I can be better than I once was, if I'm just better than enough, then somehow now God will like me and I will receive his favor. If I'm just somehow better than a Samaritan, if I could just be better than that religious leader, or if I could just be better than that priest, if I can see people better than you, if I can meet needs better than you, if I could just become a better version of me, me 2.0, if I could just be better, at, if I could just overcome, if, if I could just be morally superior to someone else, if I could just look at my own life and in my own estimation realize that, well, I'm doing about here and my pastor's doing about here, so I must be okay in God's eyes. In that moment, we become just like the lawyer and he's asking the wrong question or maybe he's asking the right question the wrong way. What must I do to inherit eternal life. What do you do to inherit anything? Nothing. You can't do anything to inherit anything. An inheritance is about your relationship with someone, isn't it? Your father passes away, your mother passes away, your grandfather, your grandmother, or a cousin passes away, and, and in their will, in the will of the father, they've said, I'm giving this to you. All this that I've earned in my life, now sealed by my death, I'm giving to you as an inheritance. And you did nothing to earn this, but nothing. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, I think that question, combined with the parable of the Good Samaritan, reveals who we really are in the story. We're not the lawyer. And we're certainly not Jesus. And we're not the priest or the religious leader. You know what? We're not even the Samaritan. We're the victim on the side of the road who was abused and who was beaten, who everything was taken from them, and it is sin. Remember John chapter 10, verse 10? The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We're the victim on the side of the road. We're the sinner in need of a Savior. We're the one who's lost and broken because of the sin in our own lives. And there is no amount of better than that we can do to become good enough to be healed. And in this story, Jesus, he's the Samaritan. He's the one that if we were honest, in our own sinful nature and in our own sinful heart, we rejected him. We said, you're not like us, and, and, and we, we don't like you, and we don't want you, and we rejected him to the point, well, that we crucified him. And Scripture teaches us that Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, he came and he lived a perfect life. Isn't that what an inheritance is all about? Someone lives for something. Jesus lived to fulfill the will of his father. And then Jesus died a perfect death to seal the promise for those that God says, by my will, I'm giving you this gift. And what gift is it? It's the gift of eternal life. And so today, that really is the essential character of the Christian life. It's not being better than. It's becoming faithful to Will we trust in the one who saves?
will we receive this inheritance that he has to offer? You see, the effect of our salvation for those of us who believe, we don't see people because it makes us better. And we don't meet needs because it makes us better. We see people and we, and we meet needs because of something that Christ has already done inside us. He's already made a way for our salvation. And now he's taken this heart of stone for those, for those he's called, for those he's, he's removed their heart of stone and he's replaced it with a heart of flesh. And so the seeing people and the meeting of needs and the asking those right questions, that's not about us becoming better than. It's about us simply becoming faithful to the call that Christ has already placed on our lives. You see, in this parable, you see the, the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom is the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. You see the character of who God is, that in spite of what you've done, in spite of how lost you are and broken you are, by His mercy, He is willing to take all of His resources and literally move heaven and earth in order to heal the relationship between you and Him. We see the character of God. We also see principles that we should practice. Because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, now we can see people. Now we can meet needs. Now we can be faithful to Ask those questions that lead to gospel conversations and listen for those questions that have gospel answers. So the question for you today is, if your life were a parable, if your life were this parable, what lesson would we learn? I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to what God's word has said this morning. And there's multiple ways that can be done If you have yet to place your faith in Christ, and this morning, that idea that, that salvation is an, is an inheritance to God, that's something you want to know more about, or if that's something that you believe you would like to place your faith in Christ today and talk to someone about it. If you have questions, there'll be people down front who would love to talk with you about that. We'd love to talk with you more about what it means to be a follower of Christ. So as we sing, feel free to come forward. Feel free after the service to visit with someone near you or around you to just ask those questions because I can guarantee you they've got answers and they'd love to talk about it.